Hey, what's up, Story Geeks? Thanks for joining us today on the Story Geeks podcast. I'm Justin, and we've reached the midpoint in our summer series of conversations on video games. Thank you for joining us as we dig deeper into the themes and deeper meanings present in these interactive stories. Today, we'll be discussing some of the big ideas communicated through the haunting puzzle platformer Inside by Playdead. Similar to most of our current Story Geeks community, I consider myself a casual gamer at best, which is why I am joined for this series by a serious gamer, my co-host Ryan Swindoll. How's it going, Ryan? So glad to be here, ready to freak out with you. Awesome. I'm ready. I've been freaking out. This will be perfect. And we felt that in order to properly tackle this game, we needed to talk to an expert in all things spooky. So we brought in fellow Story Geeks podcast host, Sandra Demas. How are you, Sandra? Spooky. That's how I am. (laughs) (laughs) To make sure you don't miss any of this series on video games or the big things we have planned coming up, you can subscribe to the Story Geeks podcast on your favorite podcast provider, including iHeartRadio now. The Story Geeks podcast is produced by the Reclamation Society. Thanks for listening. So, right, one of the things I was thinking about was how important personal recommendations are when it comes to games for me. While it's true that this game has a 90-something on Metacritic and IGN gave it a 10 out of 10, what made me most excited about playing it was its inclusion on your list and that my brother-in-law Trevor gave inside to me for my birthday. So I'm hoping that this podcast can serve as that personal recommendation to some people and get them excited to play it. So I just want to say right off the bat, spoiler warning, we can't talk about almost anything in this game without getting into spoiler territory. So we're just going to dive right in. And so if you haven't played this yet, pause it, play it, or watch a playthrough on YouTube, and then come back to our conversation. With that said, Ryan, as the curator of this list of games, could you give us a quick intro into Inside? It's very simple. So in Inside, you play this 10-year-old boy, right? He's ageless. We don't know how old he is, but he looks 10. Would you say he looks 10 years old? That sounds right. Yes. He also looks really tiny. Yeah, he's a scrawny kid. But then he's like able to lift his body weight. He's surprisingly (laughs) wiry. Yeah, with infinite stamina, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is just like the movies, right? They can run forever in the movies. Right. So you play this 10-year-old movie star who's going on an infiltration mission into this dystopian nightmare. And you're finding your way into the heart of this mind control experiment with human beings. Mm. The awful thing that you discover inside, uh, which we're just going to spoil right now, is that people are becoming less and less human. And they began very much human, rounded up in the woods, and now they're like acting like automatons, walking to some mind control thing. And then you find later on that they've been experimented with underwater, and they no longer look according to the human form. And then finally, in the great reveal at the end, you find what the developers called the huddle. Mm. Or as Jimmy, who has been following along our podcast, called the human meatball. Right. <laughs> Which gives you a really good sense of exactly what it looks like. 
Oh, yeah. It looks like a COVID-19 spore made out of human parts. Yeah, <laughs> just limbs everywhere. And it's actually been birthed inside of this water tank. And so it floats and it kind of squeezes as it, you know, gels around in the water. And in the end, this boy goes presumably to liberate it. But then right before it's liberated, it pulls it into itself. And then in that last 30 minutes of the game, you are the human meatball on this rampage to try to get out of the facility which birthed you. And in the final shot, there you are lounging in the light on a beach, and presumably you've escaped. Hmm. And on that unsettling note, the game ends. Yeah, roll credits. Yeah. <laughs> what a trip that game is. So that's the summary. I mean, let's get into our impressions of this game and kind of the the play-by-play for us. I'm so curious how you both experienced it. I played it probably when it came out four years ago, and it was haunting. And it was easily made the top most memorable games I've ever played list. Out of the three games we've played on this list, this is the third that has no audible dialogue at all. Mm. Yeah, and these games are classics in part because they're so intuitive that for most people who have played a game before, they can usually experiment with the controller and and figure out some of that stuff. I will say the fridge part even hung me up when I was trying to to grab it. I was like, oh, I know I'm supposed to move the fridge, but how? (laughs) Yeah, Justin, if you are a casual gamer, whatever is below that, like far below that is, is what I am. I'm a great watcher. Um, I I can sit and watch people play video games and and be amused, but I am so inept with all of those buttons. I just can't, and then my hands cramp, and it's terrible. So I tried, though, with this game. I played on my phone, and that's where I got caught up, is with the fridge. I didn't know how to move it. But I had the unique experience of playing that game in the middle of the night, in a dark cabin in the woods. Perfect. It just happened to be that way. And so here the game starts, the kid is in the dark woods, and he's running. And then you hear nothing, no dialogue, just the of the little kid running. So it just sounds so <laughs> terrifying. Like you're immediately immersed in that moment with the kid. And in playing that game, it really felt like the way that horror films play out, they all have a scene or two where the main character is walking down a long hall in their house, down a dark alley. The whole movie felt like that scene because you were just constantly in that tension of everything's dark, everything is just vacant. And it was eerie because I remember seeing this beautiful video shot when we were all in lockdown in LA. And it was someone skating through all of LA and the streets were empty. And so Mm -hmm. that was very much in the forefront of my mind as I was, you know, watching the playthrough when I gave up on the fridge. And seeing whole areas just with no people anywhere. It was too kind of relatable in the space that we're in right now of, you know, streets being vacant. Yeah, it hit kind of home in that regard. Yeah. All of the vacant spaces. Of course, it takes place just outside of a city and then inside and then inside of a secret area inside of the city and then probably inside of another secret area inside of that. (laughs) It's like a game about always going more inside than you were before. Yeah. And it's all vacant and 
dilapidated, falling apart. Everything is a mess. And there is this big question, like, why? Mm Mm-hmm. Why are things this bad? How did things get to be this way? And you don't have any narration telling you why, but you can only presume that it has something to do with this mind control experiment going on and that these powers of control have like taken over these spaces that used to be inhabited and now are no longer. And so as you're walking through those different areas, I feel like you can piece together bits of a story But then I was wanting so badly to listen to a director's commentary on this game just to really get a sense of what was going on. But I think maybe the ambiguity is part of the experience. And then also how true is it as a child to be going through experiences that you don't fully understand and to just try to make sense as best you can and keep going So I I felt like even the not knowing was serving a purpose as frustrating as that was to me. That's a really good point. And and that's pretty typical of good horror films. I think that they make you wait and they don't really, they don't give you too much because your imagination is far worse than the actual monster. Mm. So with this game, they make you wait and then you really don't ever get it. It's completely Mm. unresolved. And that's why, we couldn't do this episode without a spoiler warning because you continue to just step into more and more revelation and it starts asking more questions than it really answers throughout the entire game. And Sandra, this is going to sound like a leading question, but (laughs) (laughs) was the experience of watching the game one worth having because we've been talking about how people should watch these games if they can't play them and Mm -hmm. it's still a worthwhile story so what was your experience of watching this playthrough that was as satisfying as it could be for a non-gamer it Mm. was really entertaining i was like what is happening so i was still (laughs) in it you know it wasn't just playing in the background i was so curious what was going to happen next how does he know how to do that what are these things that he just ran past What are these other things that are chasing him? The dogs. I was screaming with the dogs. Mm. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, it was really, really good. Just watching the playthrough was really satisfying. Great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that 10-year-old boy can get mauled and killed in so many ways. (laughs) So many ways. It's awful. It's really weird because in films, you usually set the tone by helping the audience know which characters they're rooting for, which ones they don't mind if they get killed, and maybe it's funny in a horror film. But in this, being a 10-year-old boy out the bat, there's nothing funny or, or interesting about getting killed. Like, the only thing you want to do as you play is keep this kid alive. Yeah. And you feel you feel very strongly about that as you go through each of these scenes. And I found that very interesting in a game that doesn't explain any motivations or goals. You don't know where you're going, and yet you do have a strong motivation, and that is keep this kid alive. Mm. Aside from the boy dying by dog attack or human attack or getting blown apart by those shockwaves, the only really truly violent part in this whole game comes at the end. In the scene where the huddle is escaping, he has a moment of interacting with what the game calls the CEO. And most players, I would assume, 
crush right through him and through the window, and he splats with a really grotesque amount of blood. Right. And this is really the only true violence that, you know, is scripted in the game. And I was just kind of feeling like the game really wanted to make a point about this guy, this leader of this institution. And interestingly, if you wait about 30 seconds without crushing him immediately, he'll move out of the way. Yeah. And then you can go through the window without killing him. I didn't realize that until I was doing well, who research. Would? Where's the fun in that? <laughs> you get into this room and you see a guy behind a desk, right? You're like, this guy's dead. <laughs> He's responsible. I mean, at that point, you're not human anymore. Right. But you're still capable of empathy or compassion or at least patience or something. As the player, yeah. But that's what is so fascinating about this game is that when you pull back, it causes you to think, like, what does it mean to be human? At what point are you no longer human? You know, are these beings that are helping the kid or at least that he's able to control in some way, are they human? Is this huddle human? And it's kind of like as a player or a viewer – how do you then behave when you are no longer a little boy? You're this puddle of experimental meat. What's so interesting and what I really noticed is the lack of dialogue, the lack of really even screams, you know, human mouth noises. They're not in the game. There's maybe a few grunts with the drones, but when you get to that final act and you become the huddle, all of a sudden you hear screams for the first time as you break out, and then the huddle is constantly groaning. Yep. Mm-hmm. And when you've played the entire game as this silent boy going through all this trauma, getting to the heart of this thing, and all of a sudden now there's these human sounds, mm-hmm. it's this weird juxtaposition because you're playing as the least human thing in the game, and yet it's making the most human sounds. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the huddle is really gross to hear all of these bodies and souls, maybe, I don't know, trapped in this blob. That was really gross. (laughs) Yeah, and with the huddle, going back to what you were saying, Sandra, about at what point is this a person? Is this multiple persons? Um, Is this a single thing? What in the world is happening? When you need to get the fire to like ignite the engine... The huddle is carrying this box of fire and needs to throw it over sprinklers so it doesn't put out the fire. And the thought that came to my mind was the opening scene to 2001 A Space Odyssey. (laughs) It feels like this moment in evolutionary history where this thing is using a tool for the first time. And it it was just so (laughs) weird to watch and, you know, be responsible for making it happen. There's this whole different movement paradigm with the huddle as well. It moves differently than the boy did. And so you have to learn how to rotate things, like rotate that box up around the limbs and up to the top. (laughs) I mean, I'm sad that I don't know how to play the game to, to experience what it's like to manipulate it, but just watching the playthrough and watching it stretch... I mean, I've seen like these old horror films, like the blob and the stuff, you know, these things that are able to move and stretch. 
that was so strange just watching it kind of shove itself through things. I just wonder what it must have been like for you as, as you were playing to to know how to manipulate that. Seems like it'd be fun. It it is. It's it's fun in that grotesque way. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. now I'm this thing. It's like yeah. playing the goose, you know. <laughs> like the goose was really fun and it's like, oh, I have a honk button and I can move my wings, you know. What silly things can I get up to? And in this, you know, oh, I'm a human meatball and I can, I guess, grab things and also crash into things and squeeze through things. And it's very disgusting and also alluring because you're controlling the thing. Mm -hmm. It immediately builds that empathy that I would imagine we wouldn't have a lot of empathy for it if we weren't controlling it. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, I feel like we'd be one of the other hundred people in the background running. Our desire is for this series to feel like a book club for video games. So we want it to be a conversation where you get to share your thoughts, experiences, and questions. Please join the Story Geeks Facebook group, which is where most of our dialogue is happening for each of these games. You can also engage with us on Instagram by following at the Story Geeks. We look forward to hearing from you. My big question to kick us off here is what is this world? Like, how do we make sense of the mind control? What is the story of this dystopia? One of the moments that I think starts to get at the point of the mind control is when you get to the puzzle where you have to get 20 people standing on a button. <laughs> and it's a huge puzzle that takes several minutes. It's on three different stories so you're riding an elevator up and down and so as you're collecting more and more people more and more people are following you helping you lift up over obstacles move heavy things open doors whatever you come to the very last person and it's a limp body on the floor and i think the only way to interpret it is it's a dead person and so you drag it and instead of dragging it to the elevator the cutscene that happens is the kid throws it over the edge and just lets it plop down by the button and so you ride the elevator back down and you have to drag the body again to the button and that counts as 20 and the thing that really got under my skin about that is just realizing that i'm not collecting 20 people I'm collecting 20 bodies. Mm -hmm. I, as the player and as the little boy at this moment, I don't value these people as individuals, as people with a soul, as people with yeah intrinsic value and worth. I just need the weight of 20 bodies, and I'm even going to bring this dead one. And so I think that made a really clear statement to what the institution, what the organization, what the point of mind control is. It's really just a means to an end. It's not worried about the personhood of who's being controlled or what's being controlled. To use the title of the game, there's nothing inside this body of worth. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it. that's such a good point. Like you said about personhood, there's no personhood there's no identity. There's this kind of hive mind, maybe, but that doesn't come till later. It really is what is left of humanity, at least the majority of them, because we have some observers who seem to look human still, but they are so detached from these zombies that they are able to treat them as though they don't have a personhood or identity. 
And that's very scary to think about a world where you have some people who are worthy and some people who are not. They're not even people. Mm. So as this is happening, there's actually people watching the process. And some of them are armed guards, right? But there are civilians there too. And they're not under mind control. And you know this because they all wear that silver mask. They've got these masks over their face so that you can't really see what's underneath. And they all like, I don't know if they have a smile or if they're just kind of generic. But one of them is a woman holding an infant. Yeah. And that shocked me. I never saw that the first time I played it. Mm. I was blown away because that was, I think, the first moment where it was like, whoa, there actually are people living here and benefiting from the labor of these people walking the line and under the mind control. Mm -hmm. And there was a very clear, like, classist type theme going on in that moment. Mm -hmm. You know, the haves and the have-nots, right? And that's pretty low pickings for an Orwellian dystopia. But I think what was really horrifying is that they were all wearing these masks, right? So even the civilian people are not free. They're under some other kind of regime of control. I mean, you can go that way as far as them not being really in control or, and just thinking about what's so very relevant right now when we think about racial tension, that you have a group of people who are benefiting from the suffering of others and apathetic to the suffering of others. And you know, they wear masks, some of those people, right? So it isn't necessarily a, they aren't in control, but let me further detach myself from your humanity. And and that is one way to do it is by wearing a mask. It kind of helps. It's it's just like keyboard courage in a sense, but now in real life where you, Mm. you are hiding behind something to allow you to treat someone even less human than you would. And you wouldn't have the courage to do it if you didn't have that mask. Mm. That's interesting. That whole thing is terrifying, and that is unfortunately right. mm. so deep right now and what many people are experiencing. And I think that's the biggest value exploring dystopias in films or books or games has for us because people have fewer barriers to a story that's like, hey, what if in the future there's mind control and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so let's let's think about that. Then, hey, you know how today there are people that benefit and some people that want to be anonymous in this and some people, you know, that just can feel so uncomfortable and like not a conversation some people want to have. So I'm always fascinated when stories allow us to approach some really tricky stuff, but in a potentially more palatable way because it's kind of coming sideways. And that's why I value conversations like this so much because it's like, on the one hand, it's, you know, an interesting, creepy game. On the other hand, everything Sandra just said. They seem to be doing the heart of the work of controlling and manipulating what it means to be human. And that's given rise to this final monstrosity, the human meatball. Why they made it, who knows, right? Mm. (laughs) If at some point, like, you've controlled everything, maybe the interest comes in what more you can do, what other things you can make. it's, It's a gross thought, but... We're kind of downstream of some of World War II's human experimentation, and there does feel to be some of that here. Like, okay, well, if we don't value these as people and we value them as resources, 
What kinds of things can we do with the resource? Things that we would never have dreamed of, but now because we dehumanize it, we, you know, we allow ourselves to do some of that. I mean, that's what it felt like. Right. I was thinking two things. One was the huddle when it was in the tank had several of the little caps on that look similar to what we've seen when you're going to do mind control. So part of me is just wondering if they were going to use the huddle as the hive mind to control the labor, which feels so exceedingly lazy that you're no longer (laughs) even interested in performing mind control. You want to outsource the mind control to something else. (laughs) Outsource the mind control. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. But then That's a good point. The, the other thing that I was thinking about, kind of what you were saying, Rai, about human experimentation and the company that seems to be doing well for itself may have set out to do something really good. You know, with everything that they're doing, they may have set out to cure cancer or mm-hmm. find a way to have more work done that would take care of world hunger. You know, they may have set out with the best possible intentions, but when you take a look at where they are now, you're just like, man, at what cost? I don't care anymore what you were doing. Like, there could have been a really good place you were starting from, but this place that you've gotten to is grotesque. Yeah. You know, that's such a good point because, I mean, one, it makes me think of I Am Legend, and that's what happened is that they had cured cancer but not really. It turns you into like these weird zombie vampire things, right? Mm-hmm. And we see that in real life, you know, with biotechnology and kind of like this transhumanist movement that the the goal is good. It's to ease human suffering. But even without turning people into a grotesque flesh meatball, we can still start to separate ourselves from each other by, you know, the haves and have nots of access to this technology. Who can afford this sort of tech that will allow them to be superhuman in essence? I mean, that's an exaggeration, but still the idea that we can have technology that is intended for good and it turns into something bad and that's scary. You can start in one place and if you're not careful and if you're not ethical and, you know, checking yourself and all of that, it can just go and keep going with little baby steps in a totally different direction. Yeah. Well, obviously, if you're mauling 10-year-old boys, right? (laughs) Something's gone wrong along the (laughs) way. We we already know something's wrong, right? Or if you're rounding up people into trucks. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe create a code of conduct at some point. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it is, I think, really obvious at the end that they've imprisoned or are attempting to control this creature that they've made. And maybe they feel like they are allowed to because they made it. Mm. Because I had another question about whether this creature really escapes or not, whether it really matters. It seems like it's going to start all over again. Mm. It felt very much like everything that he went through was all part of the experiment. Even the guy who was helping, that crew person helps the huddle escape. But really at the end of the game, it's like, that guy knew all along that you're just going to end up rolling down the hill and it might start all over again (laughs) and you really don't ever escape is everything meaningless it was just such a sad sad ending (laughs) because then the credits roll and you're like i don't have any answers and now 
I feel like a nihilist. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and the ending, I feel like, is an out and out tragedy, regardless yeah. of how you are interpreting it, or even if you just don't even know how to interpret it. You know, it's sad because my gut says the huddle's not gonna recover from that fall. Yeah, and so it seems like good that it's outside and that it's in light, which is probably the only time it will ever experience nature and natural light. But then Ryan pointed out something that made everything feel meaningless even more. Yep, I know where you're going. The diorama, <laughs> right? Yes. So when you take control of the human meatball, you're, you're breaking out of the facility, but at one point you crash land inside of this glass container it contains a diorama of a hillside and these trees and what looks like a lake. And it's all a model of the final shot of the game. And you're left with this huge question. Why would they have a diorama of this ending shot inside their building? And I think the creeping horror of it is maybe this whole backyard of their facility is actually also inside the greater part of the facility that it too is this engineered space. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't catch that. That's why it feels so meaningless because they knew it was going to happen. You thought you were going to escape. And I've had nightmares like that where I think I'm going to escape and I'm right back in it. (laughs) But the fact that the whole third act is about escaping from the facility is really just a classic wish fulfillment of these, you know, horrible dystopic nightmares that we've seen. Now the creature gets to escape, but instead of going on a murderous rampage and then it's killed, it actually gets what it wants, right? Mm -hmm. It escapes the facility and it sees the light for the first time. Mm -hmm. And there... Maybe it doesn't want to move or need to move because it has achieved the only thing that is left for it to have as something to fulfill it. Namely, to feel the warmth of light on its skin. Mm. And it's this awful thing. It's like they've created this monster, but even this monster has some vestige of humanity left in it that it enjoys knowing and feeling open air and freedom and warmth of sunlight. This is why I felt like at the end, it didn't matter if we were just in another diorama. Hmm. Like even if we never really made it outside, we did feel the warmth of the light. And we did, at least for a moment, escape from our captors and are now in some sense free. At least we feel free. And that's probably enough. But it also kind of played on this idea of getting outside when the game has been so much getting inside that maybe, maybe it's not important whether we are truly outside or inside, but rather that we feel like we've gotten outside. Mm. That's so matrixy. Yeah, it is a little bit, right? (laughs) But in some ways, inside and outside is a relative idea. Mm. You're blowing my mind, man. (laughs) This is weird. What if we've never really been outside? For real. Like, honestly, that's what it feels like being in lockdown. Because the the other day, I was like, I haven't been outside in two days. And and so I went to the backyard, but I'm still like in the house, basically, you know, wasn't really going anywhere. But honestly, like at the very end, 
another kind of feeling that I had was it was very much like the Truman Show. Mm, you know, yeah. like everybody was in on it except for the kid. So no one was for the kid. In fact, they were actively against him and they knew it was coming all along because they had a diorama. And there's even a picture of the huddle and it said like ground research or something. So it's implying that it happened before. So that's why it feels so cyclical. Like, okay, let's start the game over again. Yeah, that read makes the ending very bleak when he's pulled into the huddle. I guess one way to think of that might be that when the boy is pulled in, that the huddle becomes in some ways able to experiment with freedom, much like the boy had been. And therefore, the huddle's escape, because you're controlling the huddle as the player, you're giving it for the first time its own free will, whereas it never had before. And it's really refreshing, I think, in a horror genre to experience what amounts to like the horrible monster at the end really isn't going on a murder spree but is really just trying to get out and away and is most satisfied not when it's gotten revenge, but when it's achieved some isolation and some peace. Mm. With that descriptor, then, it makes me very much think of the creature from Frankenstein, you know, Frankenstein's Uh. monster, in that he wasn't really a monster, really just confused about humanity. And so in that sense, I guess it could be kind of like and you are the actual monster. The humans are the actual monsters for creating this monstrosity. Yeah, absolutely. Where I kind of landed on this to make sense of the perspective of the player, since the huddle had those mind control helmets on it, you are the huddle the entire game, mind controlling the boy to help the huddle escape. And so similar to how when you are wearing a helmet and utilizing someone else that's kind of what's been happening the whole game so when the boy gets absorbed you now have the agency and the ability to move as the huddle but you've always been playing as the huddle and that makes the huddle a villain but it was just like there's so many weird things about this game okay so we all know that gif of andy dwyer from parks and rec where he's like you know and he's got his mouth (laughs) open that was the stupid face i was making in my room right now (laughs) because i didn't think about that (laughs) And that is such a trip. Like, you totally flipped what was already flipped upside down. You flipped it right side up now. I don't even know which way it's facing, but that is scary. (laughs) But even in this, there's room for interpretation. Yeah. And Playdead is just making their next game. They are not interested in telling us, yeah, you're right. Or, no, have you thought of this? It's just (laughs) like, I'm glad you guys are talking about this. That's such a baller move, by the way. Totally. It's meant to get inside of our heads. Oh. Yep. And leave us in limbo. Oh. Nailed it. Uh-uh. <laughs> Jimmy was talking all about this, about how the whole thing is like getting our childhood horrors and dreams and actually letting them play it out. Now, he seemed to be fixated on the horror of underwater zombie girls, and I didn't have that so much growing up. But See, one of the few games I played growing up was Star Wars Dark Forces, <laughs> and it had that trash monster from A New Hope. The Dianoga. Oh. So (laughs) that idea of something in the water that is hunting you and will pull you down goes deep with me. That was horrifying at eight years old. 
We hope you're enjoying this curated list of video games to play and that you find the discussion on them to be thought-provoking and entertaining. If you would like us to continue producing video game content, let us know. One way to do that is to support us on Patreon. Among other things, that would allow us to create a second podcast focused solely on video games. We'll also be putting up some recommendations from Ryan for other games to try if you love the game we're discussing, so head over to our Patreon page and check that out. If you want more information on this podcast or a backlog of all of our content, be sure to visit thestorygeeks.com. So on the subject of takeaways, this conversation really challenged me because of how bleak you both found this game. And it may be because I've sat with it for four or I guess now six years that it wasn't as bleak on the second playthrough. I knew it was coming. Mm. Um, but having to interact about this made me realize how much we as the player bring to this game. And the only way I can see a hopeful conclusion to this game is by bringing it myself. Hmm. Like, I have hmm. to invent a hopeful solution for this game, or it's going to stick with me as, like, totally nihilistic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder if that's partly the intention of the maker of the game. Like, how do you interpret this? It's a cipher, right? It's going to bring out things that you're already thinking and amplify them. And I want to see hope at the end of this game because we've been faced with so much awful and senseless experimentation. But whether that's the case, I have to read into the ending my own interpretation. And that's not going to be the interpretation that other people share. Yeah. So anyway, I, I guess I take away a thought about my own self mm. and how much I want to do that. You're right in the sense we always bring kind of our worldview and, and we see it through that lens. As I was watching the, the game and at the very end, it was so unsettling because we don't have answers. And that's kind of what happens in life. You know, mm. there are some things we're never going to to know the answers to. And, and these are big questions, you know, why would God allow bad things to happen to good people? You know, that's like a common question. We won't really know the answer to that in a complete way. You know, why did this happen to me? Or why did this happen to my loved one? We won't know the answer to that. And that is what this game does so well, is it kind of forces you to accept that you're not really going to know. You can guess, you can speculate, you can look at all the data and, and investigate that in as much as you have the energy to do so. But at the end of the day, you might not have an answer. And so that's what faith looks like. And that's what hope looks like. And you cling to the things that you can cling to. And so whether it is science or science and faith or hope, but it's grounded in something. And in watching this game, I know that I have hope and I know that I have something that tells me that my life isn't meaningless, but I also know that that's not everybody's perspective. And that's what is so sad. It's the coming at it from a place of empathy to go, my God, if this is how some people view what we're up to in this life, that blows. And how can I be hope and light to that person? Because that is such a sad ending. <laughs> Yeah. One of the things that I walked away thinking about was as bleak as this game is, I think it reminds us of the fundamental value of people. 
going back to what I said about the puzzle with 20 bodies, I think that this game would say that there's more inside people than only physical, mechanical. I think there's a an intangible value. One of the ways that I think this game explores that a little bit is just with young people. I think this game says a couple things about young people. I, I think it says they're vulnerable, right? We're, we're on the team of the character we're playing immediately. We want to protect them. If mm-hmm. they had chosen for us to be an adult man walking through the woods, running from dogs, there's a risk element that's lost. There is some stakes that are lost. You know, Ryan, I didn't see the infant that you talked about, but there are a couple times that we do see children on the other side of the glass or with some of the supervisors or something like that. Mm. And they don't seem to be the drones or the mind controlled things. I get a sense that these people are desensitizing their children to make this normal so that they can bring them up in this business. Yuck. And so I think that we have such a responsibility to care for children and educate children so that they're not, you know, led astray and brought up believing things that aren't true. But I think that this game also says that young people are change agents. I love that it's this young kid that is braving all these dangers to go make something right, to go stand up for the disenfranchised or the vulnerable. And so this game just coupled with what Sandra was mentioning that in our time today, we see so many young people standing up for injustices and things that are not right and saying Black Lives Matter. And I think that this game honors that, that you need to go against what's been established sometimes when it's been established incorrectly or immorally or without a full appreciation for the value of people. So in the midst of such a bleak game, that's kind of what I came out with, that this game is really honoring that people matter. Oh, so many things to talk about and still Playdead not telling us what is the right answer. So we got to just keep thinking and discussing but we're going to take a break from thinking and discussing on inside because we still have two more games to talk about in two weeks we'll have a podcast about what remains of edith finch by giant sparrow ryan can you give us kind of a teaser for that game absolutely it's our most chill gaming pick it's very light on the sport and it's almost entirely like a movie that you get to play it's a very creative game one of the most creative games even after this one we just played it's very deep and thoughtful it's a reflection on life and it's a reflection on the complexities of family and of experiencing death inside of a family so you guide young Edith on this revelatory walk through her childhood home where she comes to terms with this curse that has haunted her family tree. It's inventive, it's charming and bittersweet, and it asks whether death is truly a tragic story or whether there is something in it altogether more sublime. I haven't played this game yet, so join me in playing it. And if you aren't able to play, look up a walkthrough on YouTube like Sandra did and then jump into the conversation. And for that episode, we will be inviting our friend Jimmy Roth to be our guest. 
If you've been watching the conversation on Facebook, you are probably familiar with him already because he has been an awesome contributor to our dialogue so far. So we're just excited to hear from him in person. He's the inventor of the human meatball. (laughs) (laughs) After listening to this podcast, head over to our Patreon page. If you are not yet supporting us on Patreon, you can still listen to Ryan's recommendations for other games you might enjoy if you loved Inside. If you are already a Patreon supporter, you'll be able to hear this conversation continue as we discuss the secret ending to this game. Yes, there are more layers to this game, and that will be in an exclusive Patreon supporter recording. Don't miss our discussion on what remains of Edith Finch or any of our other upcoming shows. Subscribe today on your preferred podcast provider. Thanks for listening, and as always, question everything in your favorite geek stories. And always seek the truth.